All right, we are back. Thank you for just a little bit more of Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen, Mr. McMillan. That particular little ditty was, everybody's doing it. Of which we will say no more. You know, there, there are times, I must confess, when I'm sorry that we don't have the ability to show you pictures. I'm holding in my left hand right now a photo of a man, about age 70, grinning at the camera as he's holding a large stein of beer in his right hand. This might have come from our friend James Israel at the Humor Times. I'm, I'm not sure, but the text beneath this man's grinning figure says, A Sydney man has set an ambitious target to phase out his alcohol consumption within the next 29 years as part of an impressive plan to improve his health. The program will see Greg Taylor, 73, continue to drink as normal for the foreseeable future before reducing consumption in 2049 when he turns 101. The headline for the piece was, Man announces he will quit drinking by 2050. And of course, anyone who's been following what's going on in terms of these conferences we're having in Glasgow and elsewhere, I guess you'd say, about dealing with global problems would have to say, well, solemn pledges to, to end things by 2040 or 2050, like China has said it will do, or India is making some noise about how it might, uh, might do something by, I think, the 23rd century, I'm not sure. Well, it's too little too late. The same burlesque noted that uh, Mr. Taylor will also be able to bring forward drinking credits earned from the days he hasn't drunk over the past 40 years, meaning the actual end date for consumption could actually be 2060. To assist this transition, Taylor has bought a second beer fridge, which he describes as the capture and storage method. Yes, you just have to laugh. Well, you have to try and laugh. I'm, 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 I have something that's considerably less funny to discuss. On this very topic of dealing with global warming, or more, maybe more correctly, not dealing with global warming, this is an article from theconversation.com from a PhD candidate in history at Stanford University, Benjamin Franta. This appeared in print uh, last month, and I think I should quote from it. it. said, Mr. Franta, four years ago I traveled around America visiting historical archives. I was looking for documents that might reveal the hidden history of climate change, and in particular, when the major coal, oil, and gas companies became aware of the problem and what they knew about it. I poured over boxes of papers, thousands of pages. I began to recognize typewriter fonts from the 1960s and 70s and marveled at the legibility of past penmanship and got used to squinting. What those papers revealed is now changing our understanding of how climate change became a crisis. The industry's own words, as my research found, show companies knew about the risk long before most of the rest of the world. We would remind you, dear listener, that James Hansen in the late 1980s, came forward and started talking about global warming and the impending crisis. And he predicted back then that we would see things like dramatic swings in climate. Well, dramatic swings in weather, which would then produce a different climate. I thought about that recently within a period of, I believe, one week apart. The good citizens of Sacramento, at least those who measure precipitation, in the Sacramento area, noted that the all-time record had been broken. Six months plus worth of days had gone by with no measurable precipitation in Sacramento. Like I said, an all-time record. About one week later, maybe it was two weeks, but very, very shortly after this, there was a forecast 
that an atmospheric river pointed at Northern California could break the all-time record for 24 hours worth of rain in Sacramento. When I saw that, I, I was a bit skeptical, like, oh, come on, it's going to get five inches of rain? I, I don't think so. Well, guess what? It broke the all-time record with over five inches of rain in a 24-hour period. Now, when you predict 35 years ago that we're going to start seeing these sorts of things, and then these sorts of things start showing up, you'd, you'd think that some people would be paying better attention, wouldn't you? Well, maybe not if we introduced economics into the equation. Anyway, back to the piece by Mr. Benjamin Franta. At an old gunpowder factory in Delaware, now a museum and archived, I found a transcript of, of a petroleum conference from 1959 called the Energy and Man Symposium held at Columbia University in New York. As I flipped through, I saw a speech from a famous scientist, Edward Teller, better known to you perhaps as the father of the hydrogen bomb, who was warning the industry executives and others assembled of global warming, 1959. Teller explained, whenever you burn conventional fuel, you create carbon dioxide. Its presence in the atmosphere causes a greenhouse effect. If the world keeps using fossil fuels, the ice caps would begin to melt rising sea levels. Eventually, he warned, all the coastal cities would be covered. Keep in mind, this is 10 years before we landed on the moon, before the Beatles first had a single, and before Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. This was before the first modern aluminum can was made continued Mr. Frante. In Wyoming, I found another speech at the University Archives in Laramie, this one from 1965, and from an oil executive himself. That year, at the annual meeting of the American Petroleum Institute, the main organization for the U.S. oil industry, the group's president, Frank Ickard, mentioning a report called, quote, Restoring the Quality of Our Environment, unquote, that had been published just a few days before by President Lyndon Johnson's team of scientific advisors, Industry told the industry audience, quote, The substance of the report is that there is still time to save the world's peoples from the catastrophic consequences of pollution, but time is running out. <laughs> time is running out. This is 1965 we're talking about. That's, um, that's 56 years ago. Of course, people are still saying, if we act now, you know, we still have some time to change things. And maybe we'll look back from 56 years in the future and say, thank God we did. Anyway, Mr. Ickhart continued that one of the most important predictions of the report is that carbon dioxide is being added to the Earth's atmosphere by the burning of coal, oil, and natural gas at such a rate that by the year 2000, the heat balance will be so modified as to cause marked changes in climate. Ickhart noted that the report had found that, quote, non-polluting means of powering automobiles, buses, and trucks is likely to become a national necessity. Anyway, I'm not going to read from the whole article, but, you know, there are other examples given again and again. Most dramatically, I think, something we talked about on this show a couple of years ago, which was that Exxon 40-page internal report on climate change dating back to 1981, which predicted almost exactly the amount of global warming which we have now seen, as well as the sea level rise, drought, and more. It should be noted that according to the front page of the report, it was, quote, to be given wide circulation to Exxon management, unquote, but was, quote, not to be distributed externally, unquote. Anyway, there's a graph that accompanied uh, this, this, this report, which I think everybody should take a look at just for its sheer dumbass accuracy. 
You know, I do have to quote just a little bit more from the piece. It, it, near the end, it says, companies had a choice. Back in 1979, Exxon had privately studied options for avoiding global warming. It found that with immediate action, if the industry moved away from fossil fuels and instead focused on renewable energy, fossil fuel pollution could start to decline in the 1990s and a major climate crisis could be avoided. But the industry didn't pursue that path. Instead, writes Mr. Franta, colleagues and I recently found that in the late 1980s, Exxon and other companies coordinated a global effort to dispute climate science, also block fossil fuel controls, and, of course, keep their products flowing. That's where the money is. Notes Franta, we also know that in 1989, the fossil fuel industry created something called the Global Climate Coalition. But it wasn't an environmental group, like the name suggests. Instead, it worked to sow doubt about climate change. This is 1989. So doubt about climate change and lobbied lawmakers to block clean energy legislation and climate treaties throughout the 1990s. For example, in 1997, the Global Climate Coalition's chairman, William O'Keefe, who perhaps not coincidentally was also an executive vice president for the American Petroleum Institute, wrote in the Washington Post, no doubt an op-ed, that, quote, Climate scientists don't say that burning oil, gas, and coal is steadily warming the planet, end quote, contradicting what the industry had in fact known for decades. The fossil fuel industry also funded think tanks and biased studies that helped slow progress to a crawl. Yeah, but don't worry, we've got pledges from a lot of different nations that they're going to slow this thing down by, oh, 2040, 2050, 2060, just like Sydney resident Greg Taylor will stop drinking by the year 2050, or maybe 2060. An outrage, Ms. McMillan asked me, is this legally actionable? To which I say, I don't think so. It is an amazing aspect of modern life. How many things are, quote, perfectly legal, unquote. And by the way, I do not recall whether I mentioned in recent programs, I, I don't know, Ms. McMillan, help me out on this one. Did I, did I mention the book, When Corporations Rule the World? You mentioned it to me many years ago, but I don't know about recently. Yeah, this book by David C. Corton, I was reading about, I don't know, 15 years ago, but I put it down because it was just so damn depressing. That's what you said back then, too. But I decided to buck up, face the music, and reread this thing, which, which I've been doing. Not quite done yet, but man, is it going to provide some food for thought for our, our future discussions just to briefly cite one or two things, he does mention in this book, Mr. Corton does, uh, the, the story of Charles Hurwitz, a corporate weasel raider type who apparently back in 1988 led a company, Maxim, that bought controlling interest in Kaiser Aluminum. Apparently back in the late 1980s, using junk bonds floated by Michael Milken of Drexel Burnham Lambert, he um, was able to purchase Pacific Lumber. And like a lot of other corporate weasels before him, decided to cash out on, on, on uh, this, this property that he owned, meaning start cutting down old growth trees. They're worth a lot of dough. In Corton's book, they mention how he showed up, I believe, at one of the, uh, the logging areas in Northern California and smirkingly told the audience, well, you know, this is all about the golden rule, which is, you know, the guy that has the gold makes the rules. And there can't be too much doubt about the fact that we're not all playing under the same set of rules. If your name is Aaron Rodgers and you're a famous NFL quarterback, you can actually lie about having been vaccinated for COVID. 
And then compound the lie by when you're getting called on it by going on Sirius XM's Pat McAfee show and saying, I'm not an anti-vax flat earther. I have an allergy to an ingredient that's in the mRNA vaccine. I found a long-term immunization protocol to protect myself, and I'm very proud of that research and what went into it. Rogers did not say what the ingredient he was allergic to or how he knows he's allergic to it or how it is he's misinterpreting the CDC website, which he is. But, you know, up till now, I've always liked Aaron Rodgers. He's a, he's a fun guy to watch, but it's, it's hard to like him so much now. And since we're talking about vaccinations and the Cal Bear football team, well, actually weren't, although Aaron Rodgers did quarterback for Cal back in the day, there's currently quite a brouhaha uh, ruminating in Berkeley about the Cal Bears football team. News reports say that 99.5% of the Cal football program, which is a strange statistic, but that's what's being thrown out, 99.5% are vaccinated, but when they started testing for COVID, they came up with 44 positive COVID cases. Now, is this a genuine outbreak? Some are saying maybe not. Berkeley Public Health thinks so. It released a statement saying that, uh, citing Cal OSHA workplace safety rules, as noting a major outbreak has taken place and accused the Cal Bears of having an environment of ongoing failure to abide by public health measures. Well, criticism of Berkeley Public Health's handling of the situation, which has now resulted in the football de- team being unable to take the field this week. Criticisms come from the Associated Chief of the Division of HIV, Infectious Disease, and Global Medicine at UCSF Medical Center. Dr. Monica Gandhi told CBS, I have zero panic whatsoever as a public health person, as an infectious disease doctor, of 44 healthy people who are fully vaccinated who may have a little virus in their nose on a highly sensitive test. Now, this whole story opens up all kinds of questions. Somebody I went to medical school, a good friend of mine, sent me an article last year, which I did not talk about much on the show, about how it was that the polymerase chain reaction tests can be misleading. If you set the bar too low in the test, you're going to basically come up with what amount of false positives, which is what they're saying may be happening in this case. Keep in mind that none of these football players or staff members were sick. Well, I guess I can't say that completely, but the article state that an overwhelming majority of cases were asymptomatic. It was also noted that not all the 44 COVID-positive individuals were necessarily spreading the disease. And this should be underlined, the polymerase chain reaction machines used in the testing process are capable of detecting virus that lingers in the nose for months, long after it is turned inactive and cannot be transmitted. Well, obviously, discussion of all this is not going to go away as we go into the winter months and we're going to see a resurgence of COVID-19. But boy, does this show how we, we are desperately in need of some more clarity on a few of these issues. Anyway, Dr. Monica Gandhi uh, did tell CBS that we are all transiently getting virus in our noses. At this point, in highly vaccinated places, we only need to start testing if people are sick. This did not need to get to this point. Berkeley officials did not respond to, you know, Gandhi's assertions, at least not yet. But the Cal Bears are going to be tested twice a week for the rest of the season. And they're going to move weightlifting outside like it was a year ago, and there have been adjustments made to team meals and workouts. Bears coach Justin Wilcox is optimistic that the Cal Bears could be closer to full strength next week as preparations begin for the big game at Stanford on November 20th. 
I'm not normally a betting man, but I wouldn't put any dough on the Cal Bears on that in the big game this year. And speaking of controversies and what people are saying to the media, which is a pretty dumb segue, but I'm holding an article here about how it was that Georgia Republican Brad Raffensperger, and yes, I think Greg Palace is right. It really is Raffensperger, not Raffensburger. You keep seeing it printed both ways. Anyway, I just about you know drove the car into a tree when I was listening to on one of the one of the NPR programs explaining why it was that yes, Donald Trump was way out of line in calling him up and seeing if he would um, you know change the electoral votes in Georgia and certify him as the winner, even though he lost. But also that Stacey Abrams was muddying the water by telling all kinds of falsehoods too about what was going on in, in Georgia. Well, no. And, you know, we do need to get Greg Palace back on the show. There's, there's just no two ways about it. Uh, Greg outlined pretty clearly what took place down in Georgia. And looking at an article here from Alternet by Sarah Burgess notes that um, Raffensperger, who's been promoting his book on cable news for the past several weeks, is attempting to blame, quote, both sides, unquote, for lies about the election, citing former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, who launched several lawsuits after questionable issues in the 2018 elections. Claimed Raffensperger, what I do accept is that both of them, though, what they've done is really tried to undermine the legitimacy of the election process. Now, I think in the Secretary of State's um, mind, if you if you take 200,000 black people off the voting rolls, you know, well, that isn't, that's, that's, that's not undermining the legitimacy of the election process. Anyway, apparently when he was speaking to an MSNBC host, uh, he got called on this. Host Ayman Mulheldin said, That point of distinction, if I can, sir, you acknowledge Abrams is not asking to overturn the results of an election. You do acknowledge that, right? She's not asking to overturn the results. Raffensperger fumbled. Well, what she said in her statement she played was not based on anything that could be supported by facts. She hit it with nine lawsuits, and we won every single one of them. They weren't supported by facts. And at that point, Moyheldon introduced his fact-checking. Sorry. So the exact match lawsuit Stacey Abrams has filed is still working its way through the courts. No? Claimed Raffensperger. No, what's working through the courts right now is actually going back to the old, uh, the old right, said Moyeldon. But her argument about claims in Georgia have still and are still working their way through a legal process in Georgia. They're not resolved. If you look at what Donald Trump did on the day of his challenge to the results in Georgia, they were dismissed the very next day. Is that correct? Raffensperger agreed. Anyway, when challenged on Stacey Abrams doing something that, uh, you know, trying to, trying to get the elections to work better, Raffensperger said, well, we're always looking at how to improve the process. The host said, right, but you're making a moral equivalence between Donald Trump and Stacey Abrams? I'm saying that is not a part of the problem. You are trying to equate someone who tried to overturn an election with someone who's trying to improve an election. To which he added, I'm just surprised you don't see the differences between the two arguments. Well, you know, we at Radio Parallax, we are not surprised that he does not see the differences between those two arguments. Anyway, this nonsense over what took place in Georgia is um, kind of disturbing. But but a truly disturbing uh, item is what I'm staring at right now. Uh, a piece from the week. They do sections called briefings that, that summarize things. They're usually excellent. They usually do a wonderful job of of uh, pulling together data to explain about this or that item, which is in the news. And uh, unfortunately, this briefing is titled, The Trouble with Polling. As we talked about ad nauseum on this program, there seems to be a problem between the difference in what the polls 
say it's going to happen, and what seems to actually happen on election day. There's, of course, two possible reasons for this to take place. One is that the elections are being fiddled with. The other is that the polls are wrong. Which do you think the national media has been preferring? The, he- the sub-headline of the piece in the week is, Polls are struggling to capture an accurate picture of the American voter. Why? To the first question, have polls lost credibility? The answer given is yes. In three of the last four national elections, 2014, 2016, 2018, and 2020, polls significantly overestimated the performance of Democratic candidates. I need to pause a moment to do a slight digression. It was recently announced that the U.S. Postal Service is going to have some trouble delivering things to Australia. Rachel Maddow went on a tear about this on on MSNBC, as, as only Rachel can do. And you do have to ask, we're having trouble getting mail to Australia? What are we, the Republic of Chad? Apparently Louis DeJoy, the man that um, Donald Trump put in charge of the U.S. Postal Service, is still there. I guess, I guess it's hard to get rid of a, uh, a man in his position. Well, I'm, not, I'm not sure why, but I, I, I know that at the time they were saying, could be trouble showing this guy the door. There was much speculation in 2020 that Mr. DeJoy may be in place to make sure that a lot of ballots that were conducted through the mail didn't arrive. Of course, since the election, a lot of people have said, no, no, looks good. But let's just say here at Radio Parallax, we have our doubts. To go back to the briefing, the poll's poor performance exposed the reality that polling companies face far more challenges today in getting a representative cross-section of people to respond. They go on to surmise that maybe it's the fact that so many people have cell phones that's giving everybody a problem. Well, why stop there? Why not sunspots? They do acknowledge that, uh, that, that the polling industry faced a major reckoning after the 2016 presidential election, which looked like a shoe-in for Hillary Clinton. But as we all know, it didn't turn out that way. To the second question, what happened that year? The magazine said, most polls predicted Hillary Clinton would be elected president. Yeah. In the final days, aggregate polls predicted she'd win the popular vote by three percentage points. That turned out to be only one point off, well within the stated margin of error. But on a state level, the polls missed a last-minute surge in support for Donald Trump in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. His narrow victories there gave him the Electoral College and the presidency. So the question again arises, were the polls wrong in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania? We took a close look at this back in 2016 and concluded that they probably weren't. Well, at least not in the case of Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Clinton had a solid four percentage point lead. And in both cases, she lost the popular vote there by 0.7%. Just enough, we would say, to to make it look legit. It kind of gets worse from this. The third question is, why were the polls so off in 2020? To which they said, Americans elected Biden with 51.3% of the vote versus Trump's 46.8. A historically substantial margin. But most polls had predicted an even greater victory for margin and a blue wave of Democrats in the House, which failed to materialize. A study by the American Association of Public Opinion Research, the AAPOR, well, their postmortem found that polls overestimated Biden's victory margin by 3.9 percentage points in the final weeks before Election Day, the industry's worst performance in 40 years. Now again... Was this because the polls were off or because the electoral tally was off? Well, they quote Vanderbilt University political scientist Joshua Clinton calling 2020 pretty much a perfect storm for pre-election polling. 
First of all, the pandemic change campaigning and voting norms. One theory is that left-of-center voters were more likely to follow social distancing guidelines and stay home, making them more reachable by phone, and thus overrepresented in polls. Sure, that sounds likely. Second, turnout was the highest in more than 100 years, with new and energized voters possibly weakening pollsters, likely with newly energized voters possibly weakening pollsters' likely voter screens. Well, I, I don't see how that can be. How is it likely voter screens miss these newly energized voters? I, I don't get it. Finally, it said Trump repeatedly told his supporters not to trust fake polls that showed him trailing, perhaps influencing them to ignore calls from pollsters. Yes, perhaps. Which leads us to the shy Trump voter theory, which was much like the shy Bush voter theory we talked about a great deal back in 2004. But in a sidebar, the piece asks, were there shy Trump voters? They said before the 2016 election, Trump campaign manager Kellyanne Conway was among those who claimed he had hidden support from so-called shy voters who may have told posters they were voting for Hillary Clinton out of fear of negative judgment. But the piece notes that the shy Trump voter concept remains controversial. In 2020, even online and robocall polls, which offered Trump supporters relative secrecy, overcounted Biden supporters, and the pro-democratic polls bias were even stronger down ballot. By that, they mean off the presidential race and the senatorial congressional races. Those were even more pro-democratic than what was supposed to be a blue wave electing Biden and other Democrats. The piece quotes a Republican pollster, Neil Newhouse, as saying, well, Trump spent the last four years beating the crap out of polls. A big proportion of his supporters just said, I'm not participating. Anyway, you can bet this isn't the last time we visit this topic. Uh, we're going to get some help from Greg Pallas and others in looking at this again. We don't think that's what's going on. Polls are not perfect, and they have margin of errors. But when you know you see anomalies that far exceed the margin of error of, of polling, like we saw in Ohio, by the way. In Ohio, site of the 2004 surprising victory by Bush Cheney over John Kerry, in Ohio in the last two election cycles, Trump had a slight lead in the polls, including exit polls. But when the votes were counted, he won in one case, I think, by eight percentage points, when a margin of error in the state was four percentage points. This should be raising eyebrows. And speaking of things that should be perhaps uh, better known to the public and, 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 and more complained about, Jefferson Morley last month tweeted the following. Last Friday night, President Biden released a ridiculous statement saying he will delay enforcement of the JFK Records Act until December 15th. We're not in the realm of theory, but of fact. The Central Intelligence Agency is concealing material evidence in the murder of the 35th president. The CIA's actions are brazen, arrogant, cunning, and desperate, which is not to say they won't succeed. Biden ordered the release of 9-11 documents, saying 20 years is long enough. If 20 years is long enough, 58 is more than enough for the JFK case, but not for the CIA, apparently. Well, we'll certainly see what happens here on December 15th. Don't hold your breath. We do want to note, as we record here, that tonight, well, we're recording here on November 12th. As of tonight, the documentary produced by Oliver Stone and James DiEugenio, frequent guest on this program, will be aired on Showtime about the JFK case. By the time you are hearing this, dear listener, you may have already seen it. We have not yet done so, so we will withhold comments until we have. 
We do not always agree with Mr. Diogenio, but usually we do, and we find him to have done some excellent work in the past, which you know we've been happy to talk with him about on this show. I hope he will come back on soon, shortly, to discuss this documentary. We should also note by way of forward promoting that we intend to bring on one of the great authors in the JFK case, Josiah Thompson, who produced Six Seconds in Dallas back in 1967, considered one of the classic studies of what happened to our 35th president. He has a new book out now, which we are very high on, and we'll, and we'll hopefully speak with him in the next couple of weeks about it. We're running shorter time at this point, so in the couple minutes we have left, I just want to put a plug out there for, well, nuclear power. And this I will quote from Andrew Sullivan, who noted the green case for more nuclear power. Said Sullivan, when you hear that humans just need to find a reliable, plentiful energy source that doesn't blacken our lungs and burn the planet to a crisp, remember, we've already found one. It's called nuclear power. Nuclear plants generate huge amounts of electricity in a compact space without any greenhouse greenhouse gas emissions and now provide 52% of the U.S.'s non-carbon energy. These plants actually have a strong safety record compared with coal, oil, and other fossil fuels. But a few highly publicized accidents, mostly abroad, created an irrational level of fear of nuclear, similar to our fear of sharks. France currently gets 70% of its energy from nuclear plants, spends about half of what quote-unquote green Germany does to generate electricity, and produces one-tenth of the carbon emissions. Nuclear plants are expensive to build, but once they're running, they can produce enough energy to end all fossil fuel usage for our electricity. Well, I think he's overstating the case on that, but we've talked about uh, nuclear power in this program many times in the past and probably will do so again in the future. It's being underutilized. Anyway, in closing, we rely on The Economist magazine frequently on this program because they have some pretty good reporting. Their editorial policies sometimes are a little suspect. They certainly get some... um, Negative commentary in David Corton's book, When Corporations Rule the World. Close with one final meme about the U.S. Postal Service, which we were just talking about. The Economist said the USPS is viewed favorably by 91% of Americans despite billions in losses annually. This caused someone named Zach to weigh in and say, it's a service. It doesn't lose money. It costs money. No one says the military loses $750 billion a year which caused someone else to weigh in and say framing the USPS as a poor business rather than a public service is propaganda. And uh, yeah, I guess it is. We do want to note in closing that the United States Postal Service is and will probably remain the official mail delivery service of Radio Parallax. about does it this program was produced by edward mcmillan who now frankly regrets not ordering that scotch from the usps we got lots more and i do mean lots more to talk about in the near future so tune in again soon i'm douglas everett this is radio parallax we'll talk to you real soon Please, Mr.